Will you take your Bibles this morning and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1? We will finish looking at verses 14 through 18 under the heading, The Glory of the Incarnate Word. A wonderful focus, so appropriate for the Christmas season when we look at the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so many different ways to look at this and to look at him, and today I would like to do that once again from this passage of scripture, and next week we will look at him from some other perspectives in the Gospels. Let me read this, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Given our culture's obsession with self-gratification, self-promotion, immorality, materialism, social justice, which is basically a euphemism for socialism, The idea of contemplating the glory of the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, is laughably absurd. And yet that's why we are here. Even at Christmas, people don't do this because they don't understand it and most people don't want to understand it. How many nativity scenes do you see in yards these days? Very, very few. Ah, but you'll see a lot of Santa Clauses, right? A lot of Frosty. I think Frosty and Santa Claus are much more popular than Jesus Christ. You look at the Hallmark movies. They're all about romance, Christmas magic, whatever that is, family. And you hear a lot about the spirit of Christmas. But you hear nothing about the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus. How sad. You know, it occurs to me that people many times are much like dogs. You know, dogs are such earthbound creatures, aren't they? When you watch them, they constantly have their nose on the ground, sniffing out stuff, putting their nose in places that nobody else would want to ever put their nose. A toad will absolutely fascinate them. A possum will drive them out of their mind. Digging up a mole will be the highlight of their day, right? Earthbound creatures. In short, they are creatures obsessed with things that, shall we say, are both gross and eternally inconsequential. You will never see a dog gaze into the sky and contemplate the glory of creation. A dog will never look into the heavens and say, oh, how the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of his hands. And certainly a dog has no capacity to contemplate the unsearchable riches of Christ because he has not been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. People without Christ have similar priorities, and we see this all the time in our culture. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man, in other words, a person that has never been born again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because... He is spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. In other words, he has 
no capacity to properly evaluate spiritual things because the Spirit of God does not dwell within him. They live entirely on earthly human, kind of an earthly human worldly level. By contrast, that text goes on to say that the spiritual man can form a judgment on all things. It says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. And that's what we're doing here today. We are spiritual through no merit of our own, but solely because of God's grace in our lives. And what an amazing thing it is to see the Spirit of God begin to work on a person's heart and move them to a place of understanding who Christ really is. We, those of us who know Christ, we can all tell our stories, can't we? We can see how he did that and how he changed us. And when this happens, we begin to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. He becomes the object of our affections. He becomes the desire of our heart. However, we also know that all of the seductions of this world have a way of appealing to our flesh and causing us to leave our first love and go in silent search of other lovers. Other things begin to take up our time and our money. The world begins to squeeze us into its mold, begins to mold us into its image with catastrophic results. And sadly, many times, even evangelicals who claim the name of Christ are so infatuated with their own lives and the things of this world that they're not much different than man's best friend. We can all get caught up in that, just sniffing around, our head down, obsessed with things that are gross and eternally inconsequential, rather than contemplating the glories of Christ. You know, we would all do well to do what the angels do. You know, in 1 Peter 1.12, we're told that the angels long to look upon the mystery of the incarnation. If you study that passage, you will see that theirs is a, theirs is a posture of reverent awe. We see this illustrated, by the way, with the position of the cherubim that, that were placed above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, with outstretched wings on either side, they looked down where the mercy seat was, and above the mercy seat hovered the Shekinah glory of God. The mercy seat, of course, being the place where the just wrath of God was symbolically propitiated or satisfied once a year in Yom Kippur, when the high priest would sprinkle, sprinkle the blood on that lid. The mercy seat, of course, being a type of Christ in the discharge of his, of his priestly office. And, and dear Christian, we should be equally focused, right? And that's what we want to do here. You know, there is no greater privilege in all of the world than to be able to contemplate the glory of the person and the work of Christ that has so radically changed us. The one in whose presence we will someday stand blameless with great joy because of his great mercy. So we should be like the cherubim today, right? And fix our gaze upon him. Like the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Dear friends, the constant beholding of Christ by faith is the habit of godly men and women. And I might say as well, it is the tonic for the weary soul. If you are weary of life this morning, if your soul longs for more than what you're experiencing in life, this old world just isn't all that impressive to you, which I hope it isn't. If your heart aches to look upon how the ungodly are taking over our country, 
If you feel like you have no purpose, if you fear death, may I encourage you to turn your eyes upon Jesus, okay? That's what we'll do this morning. In fact, you remember that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When I was a young man, I can look back and remember that I cared far more about my hair than my heart. Maybe you were the same way. It was more important for me to be cool than to be Christ-like. And I feared man far more than I feared God. But over the years, by God's grace and by the power of His Word, I learned the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I hope you share that sentiment. Well, with this, we return to the, the, the final climactic verses of, of John's prologue here in in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And we began last week, and I'll just review this very quickly, but, but here there are four marvelous categories of truth that emerge from the text. Last week we looked, first of all, at the glory of the incarnate Word. Notice verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logos, translated Word, the divine Word, this personal God, who is the source of, of revelation, the revelation of truth and wisdom, is the one who already existed at creation. The uncreated creator of the universe, the pre-existent, self-existent Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did that in order that he could die in our place and thus fulfill the purpose of the incarnation in his crucifixion, which was the climax of God's condescending grace toward us who believe. Secondly, we looked at the historical life of the incarnate word. Again, it says the word dwelt amongst us. The idea here is that Christ pitched his tent amongst us. He tabernacled amongst us. And we examine the number of striking ways in which the Old, Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowed this amazing reality. In verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Again, think about this. Though veiled in human flesh, those who saw Jesus were able to see the very nature of the triune God. And even as the glory was was hidden in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and later on in the temple. Behind the veil, it also remained veiled in the body of our Lord Jesus. In fact, the word glory, doxa in Greek, uh, we get our word doxology from that. That term really bridges the parallel between the divine presence that existed in the tabernacle and the divine presence that emanated from the divine incarnate word when he came and he dwelt amongst us. You will recall from time to time as we read in the Old Testament, the Lord would manifest his glory in both darkness and sometimes in dazzling, brilliant, ineffable light. We see that and how that occurred in the wilderness. We can, we can see that in Exodus 16 and, and 24 and other passages. It was also a thick cloud of darkness, you will recall, in the temple of Solomon. And there we read in 1 Kings 8 that the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and the priests were unable to minister. He, we know that he revealed his glory in the vision that he gave Isaiah and, that he, and, and Ezekiel. And then again, when he appeared to the lowly shepherds on a hillside in Bethlehem with this blinding light of his Shekinah and the angels announced the birth of Jesus. We could go to the story of Stephen. You will recall that while he was being stoned, we read how that he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So we know that the glory of God was housed in the incarnate Christ. 
In fact, the effulgence of his glory shone forth on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And it was that same Shekinah, the glory of God's presence that surrounded Paul, whose name at that time was Saul on the road to Damascus, bringing about his conversion. So indeed, they beheld his glory in thousands of ways, even beyond what's recorded in Scripture. And folks, this is astounding. And I want you to remember this. In his human flesh, the divine Lagos was like the temple of God, and they beheld the temple of God. In fact, Jesus later would indicate this in chapter 2 and verse 19. He said, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in verse 21, it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So as we look at verse 14, we see that they beheld, it could be translated, saw his glory. By the way, theaomai in Greek, uh, it, it means far more than, than, than just physical sight. Yeah, I saw something. It carries the idea of gazing upon something with admiration and awe. And what, what it's saying here is that, that with, with wonder and with admiration as, the eyes, as our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, we saw something astounding, worthy of intense scrutiny, worthy of reflection. So the idea here, when it says that, 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 that we saw his glory, it's the idea of, of, of we beheld it, we, we studied him, we examined him, we pensively reflected upon his being. We actually viewed his glory in his person and in his work. You know, we're all beholders, aren't we? It's just how we're made. Again, animals don't do that. They don't behold anything unless they're hungry and they're going to eat it or whatever. We, we are given eyes and we have a curiosity. We have a capacity to marvel at things, to meditate on things that we see. I remember the first time I entered into St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I looked up and saw those paintings and I wept as I beheld the glory of that place and all that that symbolized. Well, many things catch our eye, the eye of wonderment and the eye of contemplation, a sunrise, a sunset, a constellation of stars. The, um, have you ever seen the northern lights? I've seen them many times. They're just, they're just almost overwhelming. We behold the magnificence of a flower. I love to watch the hummingbirds off of my porch. We behold those things. We behold the power of a volcano, of a tornado, of a hurricane, of, of, of a tsunami. So folks, we were made to behold, but no one has ever seen anything so magnificent as the incarnate Christ because no one has ever been able to behold God and live. And yet John says here that he and the others beheld they beheld the divine glory of the Son. They witnessed the supreme excellency of his person. They saw his perfections shining forth through the veil of his human flesh during the state of his humiliation on earth. And in due time, in, the, in a coming day of exaltation, the complete fullness of his glory will will be something that we will all see when he returns in power and great what? Great glory. But would you notice that his glory that they beheld was something up close and personal? In, in verse 14, it says, Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. I want to camp on this once again for just a few moments because people can get this confused. The phrase only begotten monogenes in Greek, is a, a term that is often used among the cults to somehow imply that the Lord Jesus Christ was a created being, not the eternal self-existent God. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is a lesser God than the Father, for he is called God's, quote, only begotten Son, John 3.16. So you will hear this type of thing from time to time among the, 
the cults. But as I mentioned last week, the term has nothing to do with a person's origin, but carries the idea of uniqueness, of of singularity, of one of a kind. For example, even though Abraham had other sons, in Hebrews 11, verse 17, Isaac was rightly described as Abraham's, quote, only begotten son. Well, why would that be? Well, because Isaac was the singularly unique, one-of-a-kind son because he was the son of promise. God's covenantal blessings to Abraham and his progeny would, would ultimately flow through and only through Abraham's only begotten son, Isaac. So Jesus is the son of God in a metaphysical sense, the only begotten son. He is the singularly unique, one-of-a-kind son to be distinguished from believers who are adopted children. So this is a reference to Christ's Trinitarian sonship. That's the point here. He is the son of God from all eternity as clearly stated in verse 1 of chapter 1, etc. So John is underscoring here the unique relationship Jesus has to the Father which, by the way, the Jews found absolutely blasphemous. They just couldn't handle this. Yet, in verse 18, he describes Jesus as the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, this is interesting because here the the text is speaking of of proximity, proximity to, to uh, personal intimacy with. The, the enjoyment of sweet communion and oneness and love that Christ had with the Father. In fact, later in chapter 3 and verse 35, we read, The Father loves the Son. In chapter 6, verse 46, Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Folks, this is the babe in the manger now. Bear this in mind. In chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And we will see this this as a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. So Jesus is the Son of God by nature from from all eternity. The end of verse 14, we read, Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. And both the phrase only begotten and from the Father modify the term glory. As a footnote, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ was created billions of years ago as the archangel Michael. And it was through his created angel that all other things in the universe were created. Jesus is considered a mighty God, small g, but he is not God almighty like the Father. They say that he is a lesser God. Jesus is not to be worshipped like the Father. In fact, they believe that after his crucifixion, Jesus was raised from the dead as an invisible spirit creature with no physical body. And they believe that Christ's spiritual and invisible second coming took place in 1914. And he has been ruling as king since then through the Watchtower Society. How sad. Mormons believe that the universe is governed governed by a head god and his council, and that this God has goddess wives. They believe that God is limited by a physical body, that there are many gods, and that Jesus was a created spirit brother of Lucifer and Adam. They deny the Trinity. They deny that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God. In fact, they believe in millions of gods. They don't even know how many. When Mormons die... Couples that were baptized in the temple in Salt Lake who have been faithful Mormons get their own planet where they can enjoy celestial sex forever and produce more gods. By the way, folks, Mormonism is rooted in sexual deviancy. That's why it is not a Christian religion. For that reason and many others. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young were into polygamy. They believe the Bible had to be corrected by the writings of Joseph Smith and the pearl of great price, the doctrines and covenants. One other example, Muslims believe that Allah alone is the one true deity. He has neither mother nor father. Similarly, he has no sons or daughters. 
that he is not a trinity, he is not the God of the Old Testament, and he is not the God of Christianity. For them, Allah, according to Islam, is the God of all humanity, and according to Islamic literature, Allah sent thousands of prophets, and Jesus is just one of them, but Muhammad is the greatest of them all. Well, of course, all these claims are false. They are doctrines that have been inspired by demons, and there's hundreds of other false religious systems like them. Well, all of this is kind of an introduction to where I want to be here this morning for a few minutes. This brings us to the primary subject and the third category that we see here emerging from the text, and that has to do with the fullness of the incarnate word. The fullness, or you, you could say the completeness. We're going to see this in verse 16. It's referring to the absolute deity of Christ. I want you to notice the final phrase of verse 14. And we behold, or we beheld his glory, glory as from, could be translated literally from beside the Father. Why was the glory they beheld, the incarnate Son, so inconceivably magnificent? Well, the answer is because his glory is the same as the Father and as a result of the eternal relationship he has with the Father. You want to see God? You see it in Christ. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Dear friends, Jesus, the Son, is the effulgence, shall we say, of the glory of the Father and the very image or the, the, the very impress of, of his substance. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So this helps us understand this astonishing statement at the end of verse 14. The glory of this word that became flesh is, quote, full of grace and truth. And, of course, this was the intended purpose of the divine nature. This is why he came to, to manifest his essential glory in the administration of grace and truth. <laughs> Two virtues that are seldom seen in our world today, grace and truth. We know that Satan is the father of lies. He is the one that God has allowed to temporarily rule this world. And he uses his deceptions in orderly systems, false religions, uh, your news media, um, politicians on both sides of the aisle, um, through educators that propagate godless ideologies and so forth. In fact, if you could indulge me one example uh, I, I saw this in Reuters this last week. Here's what it said. Scientists may have solved one of paleontology's enduring mysteries, the evolutionary origins of the flying reptiles called pterosaurs. That comes, by the way, from the Greek term um, pteron and sauros, which literally means winged lizard, Okay. I don't know why they don't call it winged lizard, you know. I, I mean, it sounds more scientific when you use those names, right? It went on to say the oldest known pterosaur um, appear in the fossil record about, catch this, 220 million years ago with anatomies fully developed for flight, including wings. Amazing, and people believe these things. By the way, God says, and I know I'm chasing a rabbit here, or should I say chasing a winged lizard. God says, Genesis 1:21, and God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Oh, dear Christian, how thankful we can be for the word of God that we're not deceived with all of these things. The word as well that became flesh, the Lord Jesus that was full of grace and truth. And what a promising and comforting phrase that is. I mean, when he came, he wasn't filled with wrath as he could be, and justly so. He was full of grace and truth. 
You see, here we find the, the very pinnacle of divine glory. This is at the heart of the gospel. Beloved, this is why the angels stoop to look upon the incarnate Christ, full of grace and truth. It's just sheer wonder to them, as it should be to all of us. And you will remember, grace and truth are the two indispensable elements of salvation. No one can come to Christ apart from grace and truth. Yet Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? So naturally, he had to be filled with these two glorious attributes, grace and truth. Man cannot believe apart from saving truth, the saving truth of the gospel, nor apart from God's saving grace. Were we not all like Lydia? I was reading about her this last week. In Luke 16, a passage caught my eye. Here's what he said of Lydia. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's grace, so that we could hear truth. And that's why she believed. Acts 18, verse 27 states that sinners believe, quote, through grace. And Paul described the message that he preached as the gospel of grace in Acts 20, 24. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you all know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man no may boast. Second Timothy 1, 9, this is the grace that was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, this idea of the Messiah being filled with grace and truth would not have been a foreign concept to the Jews that were first hearing this. John's words actually hearken back to the description of Jehovah in the Old Testament. Remember when the glory of the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai and passed by in front of Moses? You will recall that scene. God made a, a comforting and yet sobering proclamation to Moses, one in which we can all rejoice. We read about it in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, here it is, loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness, Hebrew chesed. The idea of grace, loyal love related to the faithfulness of God's covenant. It's all part of who he is. In Psalm 25, verse 10, David said, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Chapter 40 and verse 11, thou, O Lord, wilt not withhold thy compassion from me, thy Loving kindness and thy truth will continue, continually preserve me. So, again, when applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the same attributes being manifested in the Son. He is full of grace and truth. But think about what grace is. It's, it's, it's undeserved favor. Just his condescension from heaven's throne to to a manger, staggers the mind. I mean, you talk about grace. During his voluntary humiliation upon earth, he was, he was the, the, the personification of grace. He demonstrated unmerited favor for sinners, sinners of all stripes, from prostitutes to publicans, right? From adulterers to hypocrites. All manner of sinner, including me, including you. His every word, his every expression, his every gesture, his every touch was motivated by his love for undeserving sinners. And even his miracles of, of physical healing that he, that he lavished upon the people of Palestine in those days was a manifestation of his grace upon those in need. And then to think that he was willing to shed his blood so that grace could, could cleanse our sin. So that our 
Guilt could be pardoned through justification. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Beloved, all of this flows from the fullness of the attribute of God's grace. Christ alone could merit the grace of God for sinners like you and me. Moreover, Jesus was the personification of divine truth prior to his incarnation. Saving truth, if you look back in the Old Testament, was somehow clouded by the shadows, by uh, the shadows of symbols and types and ceremonies and feasts and convocations and sacrifices and prophecies, all of those kinds of things. But when the Logos came and dwelt among men, they saw the final reality of all of those shadows, all of those things pointed to the person and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the substance of all of those symbols. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. My friend, unless you believe the truth about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will perish in your sins. You will pay for your sins rather than trusting in him to do that for you. So you must accept God's full revelation of himself in Christ Jesus, the incarnate word. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In chapter 8, verse 31, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is. Paul reminded the Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 3, in him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We know that Paul expressed thanks to God for the conversion of the Thessalonians. And he said in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 that God has chosen them from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. But then John, the evangelist here, goes back in verse 15 and he says this, John, referring to John the Baptist here, bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. It's interesting here, the herald of the, of the Messiah King was not merely passive in his witness. Oh no, he was loud and he was bold. He was unashamed. No one could miss the truth of his message. Would that we be so bold in our witness. And in essence, what he's saying is that John the Baptist said, he that comes after me with respect to his current mission and message has already been active among men long before I was even born. But notice in verse 16, he says, for his fullness, pleroma in Greek, uh, again, the idea of the completeness that's manifested in his deity. For his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. This is one of the most encouraging and exhilarating statements in all of scripture, dear friends. You see, the word fullness underscores once again the absolute deity of the incarnate word. It's the same word, by the way, that is used in Colossians 1 and verse 19 as well as in chapter 2 and verse 9. There we read, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, the fullness of the deity, to dwell in him. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. But I want you to notice closely at verse 16. Again, for of his fullness we have all received 
and grace upon grace. The, the word of here um, translates the, the Greek preposition ek, um, which signifies, signifies out of. We get our exit sign from that. He's saying here, out of the fullness of Christ, we believers have all received. Well, what is it that we have received from Christ? Oh, dear friends, all things pertaining to life and godliness, all things pertaining to eternal life. I mean, where do you even begin? It is out of his inexhaustible fullness that we have received everything that we need in this life and in eternity. And John has already stated the two most important blessings, that of grace and truth. We cannot be saved apart from them. He also speaks of God's own word in John 17 and the Holy Spirit in John 20 and on and on it goes. What a limitless and inexhaustible flow of blessings come from the reservoir of our Savior and Lord. And he says, grace upon grace. Undeserved blessings that are, that are piled up on top of each other. It carries the idea of, of, of layer upon layer, time after time. I mean, how can we even begin to count them ways? All sufficient grace to meet every need, regardless of what it might be. Folks, think of some past difficulty in your life. Did he not come to you in his all-sufficient grace and minister to you? Seldom does a day go by that I am not called upon to bring grace and truth to bear upon a person's life because they're in some great misery. They're perhaps in the bondage of their own sin or somebody else's. Maybe they're suffering in some way. Often lives are like scrambled eggs. Humpty Dumpty can't put it back together again. Oh. But what I can do and what I do and what you do is you point them to Christ. That's our only hope because in him we find grace to help in time of need. His grace is always sufficient. By the way, may I offer you this consolation if you're here today in some despair I would encourage you to look to Christ in the fullness of all that he is. Look upon his grace, the layers of grace. But the stark contrast in the conclusion of John's prologue is a contrast that between what was, quote, given to us through Moses versus what came to us through Christ. Notice this in verse 17. This is really interesting. John says, for the law was given through Moses. Semicolon. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You see, think about this. What he's saying is in his law, God revealed his righteous standard and his justice. But he didn't re reveal much about grace and truth at that point. Paul explained to the Galatians in Galatians 3.24 that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. You see, what the law does is revealed to us the holiness of God. The law exposes the heinousness of our sin and the consequences of our sin. But it did not reveal how a sinner could find a final remedy. The law demanded perfect righteousness. But only through Christ can we have that righteousness. Can we be made righteous? I mean, think about it. The, the law prevented man from approaching God. But because of the atoning work of Christ, he went behind the veil. The veil was rent, and now we have access to him. We don't need a priest. We can come into his presence. In fact, in Romans 5 and verse 2, it says that through him we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through him we have access to the throne of grace where we are admonished, are we not, to come boldly in time of need. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says, What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And how did he do it? Well, he went, goes on to say, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, finally, in conclusion, we look at the last statement here that has to do, number four, with the character of the incarnate word. In other words, what does he specifically do? Verse 18, it says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see, folks, what man could never see in the law or under the law has been fully revealed by the one who is in the bosom of the Father, the only begotten, the only unique, one-of-a-kind Son, the one who retained the same unfathomable intimacy with the Father in his incarnation that he enjoyed even from all eternity. You see, under the dispensation of the law, the full glory of God was hidden from men. They couldn't see much of it. For example, in Exodus 33:18, remember Moses begged God, I pray thee, show me thy glory. But God would not allow him to see his face. You recall that? He hid him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand and just allowed him to see a little of his backside, a fleeting glance of his back. But, oh, dear child of God, we can now see what was once hidden, and we can see this in God's revelation of himself through Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, we read, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, referring to his creation, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of You will remember in 1 Kings 8 when the ark was brought back into the temple built by Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell with them in the thickness of a cloud. But we don't see him now in the thickness of a cloud, do we? We see him in Christ. We see God through Christ. And for this reason, Peter calls believers in 1 Peter 2.9 a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And in verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, folks, this explains what John is saying in verse 18 when he said, he has explained him. Exegetomai in Greek, we get our word exegesis from that. It, which, by the way, is, is the method of determining the meaning of a biblical text in its historical and literary context. And what he's saying here is Jesus is the only qualified interpreter or explainer of God. You want to see God? You look to Jesus. You look to see him in his word. See, again, remember, God's grace in the Old Testament was applied to those who sought mercy and grace by faith in anticipation of the full revelation of God's grace that they did not understand until Jesus was revealed. You might say the Old Testament saints were saved on credit. Now in him, the truth that was once obscured is finally revealed Grace and truth have been fully accomplished in Christ. This helps us understand more fully what John is saying in verse 18. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Folks, the issue is not so much the idea that because, God's, uh, because God is spirit, we are unable to see him. 
That's not the idea. It's not the idea that we can't see him with our physical eyes, although that is certainly true. The issue is that God is revealed only in Jesus Christ. That is the point. He is the only, if I can put it this way, Jesus is the only qualified exegete of God. If you want to understand God, look to Jesus, understand him, study Jesus. As Paul said in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the explanation of God. Because, according to Matthew 11.27, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And by God's grace, if you know Christ as Savior, he has revealed these things to you, and we continue to gaze upon them. And as we do, we fall more and more in love with Christ, and we celebrate more and more what he has done. Beloved, this is the babe in the manger. When you think of Christmas, think of these things, not Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. Think of the incarnate word of God that came to dwell amongst us the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming again in power and great glory to take us unto himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May you impress them upon our hearts in such a way that we are transformed by them. And may each of us, especially this Christmas season, celebrate Christ in the fullness of his glory and his deity that we might enjoy more fully every expression of his grace in our lives and that we might be more dedicated to serving him that others may know him as well. I ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.